Welcome back to yet another, another episode of Behind the Lens or BTL radio show in the time of COVID. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movie and TV makers, directors, writers, producers, Cinematographers, editors, sound editors, special effects, composers, actors, you name it, we talk to them and we've got them right here for you. And of course, as our regular listeners know, we love independent film and our independent filmmakers. We love our our tent poles as well, but uh, independent film we have great love for. Um, With that in mind... I have to take a moment just to acknowledge the passing of one of independent films, most original and greatest voices, uh, and a woman whom, who I adored and who I had the privilege of knowing for just under 20 years, uh, back to her days when she was editing, um, writer, director, Lynn Shelton, uh, horrifying Saturday to get that news, 54 years old. Uh, many of you may remember that um, we had our, our exclusive with Lynn on the show last year for her final film, Sword of Trust. Um, and over the past six years now, you've heard Lynn on the show before as what, uh, calling in live. Uh, so she will be missed by all, by moviegoers, by filmmakers, um, hers was a voice to which, which many independent filmmakers look to for inspiration and who moviegoers look to for wonderful entertainment. And Lynn will be missed. Um, so I just wanted to, to say that about Lynn Shelton uh, because she was always so kind, so funny, had the greatest laugh, and we always had the best time together whenever we would chat or see each other. So let's see if we can make it through this week without without too many passings. Saturday, we also lost Fred Willard and former Miss America Phyllis George, who broke the glass ceiling in broadcasting. Um, you know, it's tough out there. It is tough out there right now, but... We all go on, and one of the great things that keeps us going on is movies, our love of movies, watching movies, um, waiting to see what's going to happen with movie theaters. There are some big, big releases on the horizon for July that so far are not being moved, and it looks like there's going to be some kind of agreement uh, for theaters to open up. A big thing that's happening because of lockdown, drive-in theaters are making a comeback and a resurgence. And that is so wonderful to see happen. I know I mentioned it earlier, uh, I think on last week's show, but more films are are coming out into drive-ins that are opening 
shutter drive-ins across the country. Some are reopening. Um, so that is a great, great thing to see. Now we just have to get the film industry back to work, get everybody else back to work, and uh, things will be good because I really want to go sit in my corner seat in my favorite local bar and just have somebody wait on me, cook my food, and do the dishes. <laughs> but until that happens, I'm safely ensconced at home watching movies and doing interviews for all of you. And today, I'm very excited about today's show and the two films we're going to be talking about and hearing about. Uh, the first one, A Nun's Curse. Uh, I had the, the pleasure of talking at the end of April, uh, talking with writer, director, cinematographer, editor, and producer Tommy Faircloth talking about A Nun's Curse. It is out now. Uh, it came out, I believe, uh, like around May 5th or so, which is why it's safe to run this interview. There are some spoilers in it in case you want, in, in case you need to know that. Uh, but it's a great film. Uh, and all right, where's my note? And it's all about a group of friends who are forced to take shelter in a centuries old Civil War abandoned jail where a notorious nun named Sister Monday was assigned and suspected of murdering prisoners. Uh, there's a supernatural aspect to this. There is a horror aspect to it. But the visual, this was actually, as you will hear Tommy talk about, this was actually shot in an existing Civil War prison. Um, so, And a lot of what you see, there's an original toilet in there. There is a stained glass window that there is nothing CGI'd. Uh, it is an actual window, and the shot that you will that you see in the film is actual sunlight streaming through this beautiful stained glass window. There is actual prisoners' art that they drew on walls that Tommy captures with his camera and incorporates into the film. Uh, so. You're going to hear uh, my exclusive with Tommy in just a second here. And then at the midpoint of the show, maybe a, a little bit after, uh, is going Brian Levin, writer-director Brian Levin. His first directorial feature, Union Bridge, he's going to be joining us to talk about the making of it. Here again, has a supernatural essence. It's very atmospheric, has beautiful cinematography, courtesy of Sebastian Slater. And... It involves the Civil War and a generations-old secret uh, shot on location, I, I believe, somewhere near the Mason-Dixon line. So I can't wait to talk to Brian about Union Bridge. But before that, Pam, are we ready? Pam has to move from chair one to chair two. Take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer, director, cinematographer, editor, and producer, Tommy Faircloth, talking about A Nun's Curse. Hello, Tommy. Hey, Debbie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, just fine. Happy to be talking to you this morning. Same here. Thank you. Well, first thing I have to tell you is the cinematography your color correction, your post-production, your production values on A Nun's Curse are so high and look so good. 
and really gives you polish that makes this look like a you know a multi-million dollar film awesome thank you that makes me feel good to hear that because i'm the cinematographer and the editor <laughs> i i just i you know now i had taught i spoke with felisa uh, about 10 days ago, and she and I hadn't seen a nun's curse yet. I was still waiting to get a link for it. And she goes, oh, my God, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And she was filling me in on, on what to expect, but she didn't even mention production values. And oh, yeah. I, I think she's just so used to, you know, working on so many films, that's not even a thought to her. Yeah. Was, you know. But, yeah, I appreciate that. That makes me feel good to, to hear that. <laughs> I mean, it really... But the entire story and the great twist that you have in there in the third act involving Ashley, um, just so well thought out, so well planned, but and you have it in such a contained location. Smart, <laughs> smart, 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 smart. Uh, yeah, when, it, when I originally was, you know, writing this idea... I was like, you know, because I've done, you know, a lot of features before where we have so many locations and, you know, that's always a big pain. And I said, you know, I want to do one that's kind of like The Breakfast Club, but a horror movie. And so, or like even the Saw, the first Saw, you know, you're all confined to this one mm -hmm. area. So that was kind of a challenge to, you know, make everything look different, even though we're like in a concrete building. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that with filmmakers in the Philadelphia area. Um Eastern State Penitentiary is there, and it's been closed for decades. But that thing, it's ancient. It's about 150 years old or whatever. And when you can get permits to film in there, and you go down tunnels and hallways, and I see that with, with your location, you can really change the entire look and feel. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because Blue even the lighting, the, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Because not everywhere gets lighting, and it's pitch dark in there, and so it just bodes so well when you have the right story, and you have the right story. Okay. Where number one, what lo, where did you film this? What location did you find? Sure, it's um, it's in Orangeburg, South Carolina. It's a little town, but the actual. Um, jail. It's known as the Pink Palace. You can't really tell because it's faded, but it was painted pink, and um, it's just kind of faded over the years. But it was a jail from the 1800s. Um, a lot, of, I, and if you, in the movie we mentioned, you know, about the tower mm -hmm. and about this is where prison, prisoners would be hung, and that's actually true. I just kind of put that in there. But um, during the war, you know, Sherman took over and used it as his offices for a while. And then, you know, of course he tried to burn it down. And I think the last time it actually had been used as a jail and there were actually prisoners in the jail were, was like in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. So when we were filming, you know, we would be in rooms and we would, you know, set up lighting and things and we would find things on the wall, like prisoners were, you know, where they had wrote their names or counted, you know, days down that they were, you know, were serving. So it was really cool finding real stuff like that that I could incorporate into the movie. Mm -hmm. um, like the one scene where the guy sees the drawing of the, of the lady. On the wall, the yeah. Yeah, that was actually something that one of the prisoners had drawn and it had been there all these years. So wow. I saw that, I just kind of wrote that into the script as well. You know, and that's a sad commentary because you see something like that and it's a beautiful sketch on the wall. 
And right. it's like this man had talent. You know, what did he do with his life that turned so wrong? He he had artistic yeah. talent. Um, it, was, it was, I mean, it was pretty crazy to see some of these, because it's so ancient, like, you know, I mean, just some, you can see kind of the plumbing that they had, and just to think, wow, what's it like to be, you know, imagine being stuck in here. And then one area, besides, you know, just being in the jail, but then there was like a box in a box. It was mm-hmm. kind of like a really confined area, so it was, when we were shooting a lot of these scenes and actors would be in there, it, was, they could, they, it, it helped them, of course, get it, you know, get into the character but we're just talking about how creepy it was mm-hmm. and imagine living in the prison now there's no electri- running electricity and there is there at this point well there is um, oh okay that, that was lucky for us it's actually a three-story jail mm-hmm. um, and we shot in the top section and in the basement the middle section had actually kind of been remodeled the guy that owns it and he used it for um, like a gym, so there was multiple rooms where he had workout equipment and mirrors on the wall, you know, offices, and so it worked out perfect for us because we used it as our production, you know, area. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, we had a room for wardrobe, we had a room for makeup, you know, room for, you know, actors to chill out when they're not working. So it, and and of course electricity and a bathroom, which was a huge plus. So we were able to, you know, run power in the basement and on the third level as well oh that's fabulous yeah okay yeah. well if you ever go to philly to want to shoot an eastern eastern state penitentiary there is no power there so right. so you have to generate everything in on your own <laughs> right and the funny thing is is the original jail that i was looking at to shoot in was in another part of the state um in beaufort south carolina and you know that was i really wanted to shoot and we didn't get to later you know, I'm like, you know, it would have been a lot of, you know, logistics trying to get power there because this place was completely open to elements, no power, you know, the roof was leaking. And I was like, that, that was probably a blessing in disguise that we didn't get that location. So, mm-hmm. you know, now, how did you go about scoping out the specific cells and corridors that you wanted to use in here? Because obviously some may be in better shape than others. Some may suit your visual uh, tonal bandwidth and design better. So I'm curious how you go about going through a prison from the 1800s and decide which parts are going to look the best that you want for this story. Right. Well, um, one thing about this location is the top level is like a mirror image. One side is a mirror image of the other. So it was kind of challenging to look, okay, we need to make this hallway look different not that we just flipped the camera it was like that so when i was originally scouting out the locations and this is something i do with all my films i try to write as much of the location into the script as mm. i can it just makes it more authentic and so you know when i was taking a, on a tour of the place i would you know look at every inch you know what what scene would work here what scene would work here and then i would kind of just you know look at a sketch of it and almost like an outline, you know, when they arrive, they go here, they go here, you know. So, um, I mean, I think I literally used every single inch of, of the prison and the, and the film itself. And there were some little, there was some, uh, you remember the scene where she um, opens, there's like a little closet yep. that she opens. That actually was, what is it called, a dummy waiter? You know, where you Oh, like a dumb waiter, in. yeah, where you yeah. pull the stuff from one floor to the other, yeah. Right, and originally I wanted to shoot a scene where she was looking down from the top, you know, and I was at about 
so it just didn't work out because it was so far away. Mm-hmm. But um, I still was able to use you know that scene. But little the little quirky things like that about these old locations, I try to include that. Um, but the one challenge that we had while we were doing all this is, you know, a hurricane came through while we were filming. Oh, God. And the, the whole basement flooded. <gasps> so, yeah, for like a few days. So me and Tracy, one of the uh, co-producers, we would show up, you know, a few hours before the set. And we had a wet dry bag. We would just suck out all the water we could. Because um, luckily there was a shower there we could dump it in. But yeah, just dealing with stuff like that. Because I'm like, you know, we got lights. We have, you know, actors. We can't be, you know, pulling you know, extension cords through, you know, two or three inches of water. So that was that was pretty scary. But, oh. you know, it's just something we're used to working on indie films. Stuff like this happens all the time. You know, and I love I love the, the, the dumb waiter closet because and your transition there as she approaches it and you go with the flashback and what she's yeah. seeing as a, a child that worked so beautifully there. And your transitions with the flashbacks are so cleanly done, Tommy. Thank you. Um, yeah. it, it ha- it's very it's natural. It doesn't feel like a jump cut, um, which it's not. You do a very subtle dissolve into that. Um, it's like black to black almost. Um, and it just works so beautifully as you go in and out there. Yeah, and, the, and the actors, I mean, they did such a great job because, you, know, you know, I'm explaining to them, you know, while we're shooting, this is going to be, you know, a flashback. I'm cutting between this and that. You're just like, are they getting it? Did they even get it? But, I mean, obviously they did. They nailed it. And then once they actually saw the finished product, you know, a lot of, oh, that's, you know, that's how it looks. That's what you were going for. But it's still, you know. Were great. Now, what talk to me about the stained glass window? Was that okay. put in in post production? Is that actually somewhere around there? Is it part of the building? I don't know. It's it's part of the building, and you you know from the outside it doesn't look. You can't really see the stained glass, but once you're on the inside, and the light's coming through. You can. See, I mean, it's just like that in the sound. Oh my god! Um, but what I was telling you earlier about you know the original gel that I wanted to use for this. Originally, the film was going to be about a jail warden. It wasn't going to be about a nun. And when we lost that location and I found this one and saw that big stained glass window, I was like, I think I wanted to, you know, make this about a nun that works here at the prison. You know, because it looks so gothic and like a church. And mm-hmm. It would just work. You know, the window would be a bigger character with having a nun in the film. And plus, I knew Felissa. And I was like, she'll be a great villain. But oh, that's God, yeah. Where that started, yeah. So that window was was in the prison. It's actually there. I mean, that's stunning. And that, of course, lends itself so well to the second half of the film where you are awash in that beautiful, beautiful blue. And you mm-hmm. stick with blue, yellow, and then, you know, pops of red. So you've got, you're sticking with your three primary colors on the color wheel here in this film. And you carry that through with just the red and black and white in your opening titles as well. But sticking with those three basic colors just makes everything pop that much more. And then you get some beautiful, the the long shot you've got with the foreground, the background, going through a cell and doorways, and you've got the yellow stained glass window in the far back. You've got an image of a shadow which looks like a nun walking by and you're going through the cell bars and the doors that is one of the best shots in the film i absolutely love that shot 
sweet. Thank you. Yeah, and that was it. Was kind of playing with the with the colors. You know, it's like a as you know tension builds and as it gets darker, it gets crazier. The colors get more vibrant. Yeah. Um, get real more contrasty. You know, so it's like you're almost entering a dream world or a twilight mm-hmm. zone type of situation, which is what I wanted. So that when once the ending is revealed. You, you get that feel you're like, like it was kind of like it wasn't real but but yeah thank you oh no uh, your your use of the use of the color and then the saturation and the contrast is absolutely gorgeous tommy um i just fell in love with that fell in love with that the minute you did that the visual the transition as it started to get darker um as the sun was going down and there they are Stuck in a prison. The cool thing, and the cool thing about it is, you know, we we didn't even shoot any of that at night. It was all day for night. Oh. So I give a lot of that props to my lighting guy, Matt Maynard. That you know, we'd be in a room and we're like, okay, this is the look I'm going for, and he would just, you know, turn it upside down. It was great. Oh my god! And I gotta ask you about the toilet. Original, <laughs> original toilet or a prop? No, it was original. It was. It was there in the in the cell. We actually broke it after we shot that scene because it wasn't bolted to the ground. It had fallen over, and I was like, thank God we got the shot before that happened because it, it was the only toilet in the prison that was where we could move it around and use it. Okay, did you disinfect it first? <laughs> I believe we wiped it down, but, I mean, it's a little cinema trick. She really didn't sit on the toilet. You know, we had like a... Oh, yeah, toilet. I know. You know, but because a couple of those shots when we were shooting, I realized you could kind of see the toilet in the background because uh-huh. I was trying to rush through a shot. But, um, yeah, she, she didn't have to do I think she originally there was a shot where she's kind of squatted over and then she comes up from it. But, but yeah, no, she, was I, she was a trooper about that, you know. <laughs> Even if I'm not sitting on it, I would have wanted it disconnected, you know, disinfected. Right. I was like, it can't be too clean, you guys. You know, this is a prison. Yeah, no, it it can't. Everything's filthy about the toilet. (laughs) Well, you know, the ghosts could really care about hygiene. What, you know? (laughs) You know, you integrate history into this, you know, with, with Ashley being a character who's obsessed with nuns and and the visions that she had as as a kid and the nightmares and all um but you actually make her you know she's into research study things like that was that important to you um to not have just a bunch of vacuous people running around because so often in horror films it's just a bunch of dunderheads and but here you've got some intelligence and i have to say Gunnar Willis is Michael, an absolutely charming, sweet character. Yeah, Gunnar's great. Um, this is actually the second time I've worked with him. He, the first film he ever did was my movie Dollface, and he's gone and he's done a ton of stuff. Actually, last night I was watching Ozark, and he was in the third episode, I believe it was the third or fourth. And I was like, oh, there's Gunnar. I didn't, I completely didn't know he was in this. So, but no, he's great. He's super super great guy but um yeah Ashley her character um which is played by Erica Edwards she um was in my last film called Family Possession and she kind of played the same type mm-hmm. of character where she's you know not super popular or anything like that but she kind of was more of a follower and 
I originally told her, I said, it's kind of like you're like Carrie, but without the powers. And, but in this version of it, she doesn't care as far as, you know, trying to fit in. She, right. she has her own interest. This is what she's into. Take it or leave it. And plus, you know, having that that combative relationship with her sister and, you know, just adds to that because everybody can, you know, they can feel for her because they've always, if you, know, you, you have a sibling or, you know, someone you fight with and don't get along with, you know, they can, they can see where she's, excuse me, where she's coming from. Um, but her and Erica and the girl that played her sister, Christy, mm-hmm. they're, they're both, they had great chemistry, but they're also in real life, like best friends. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and I think at the time they were roommates as well. And I'm, I'm, I've known them both, you know, for a while. But um, I saw a short film that they did where they played sisters while I was trying to cast this film. Because um, I just didn't want, you know, I was thinking, I'm just, I need to get some new actors. You know, I don't want to use Erica again because I just used her. And, you know, Christy, I've, I've known her for years. I said, I just didn't think about it. But when I saw them in that film, I was like, they were so good together. I was like, and I'll forget the role. And they were, of course, you know, yes. <laughs> they, but they, they have great chemistry. Um, Christy playing, you know, such a vapid, horrible person is hilarious because she's completely not like that at all. And I've talked about this, you know, in other interviews, and I'm, she said it as well. She said, you know, usually when she takes a role, she tries to find something she has in common with the character. She goes, I just couldn't find anything with this one because she's so mean. <laughs> She played it so well. <laughs> yeah, you did a great job casting these four. And Damien, I've seen Damien pop up in, in all kinds of things, in various, you know, small roles. I mean, he was in, he had a small role in Strangers uh, Pray at Night with my friend Bailey Madison. Um, so I, Damien, I see pop up. And he he always has that, the attitude that he that he brings here. <laughs> Yeah. He's an ass. Well, he's, he's, he's funny because, you know, I was writing this when I talked with him. I was telling him about it. I'd seen him in a, a, he had a, a small role in a film that played at a festival, a program called Crimson Screen a few years back. And so um, I reached out to him, you know, told him about the movie and, you know, if he'd be interested. And, you know, people, especially actors, they, they get hit up with stuff like this all the time. And you're always like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Mm-hmm. It never comes but um, so as I got to know him and see his sarcastic side, and I'm kind of the same way, I used a lot of that to write dialogue around his character and things like that. So he's a lot like his character, of course, not you know as moronic, but you know he he comes across very you know sarcastic that way, but in a lovable way. Yeah, know? but no, and no, go ahead. Plus he and you know like in Strangers and. Haunt, and he just did the the wrong turn reboot. You know, he's he's good, he's good at getting these roles where he plays these killers and mm-hmm. all these different characters and wearing you know these different masks and costumes. And so I was excited. I'm well, I am excited for everybody to see him as an actor, yeah, you know, without a mask because he's really good too. And I would never tell him that to his face because you know. Well, no, then that ruins the whole thing. (laughs) That would ruin the whole thing, Tommy. No, you can't say that to his face. Can't say anything nice. No, but I. I'll send him him a review and be like, "Hey, here's a really good review about the film." He'll write back and he'll go, "Who was this? Somebody you knew? Somebody you paid?" You know, know, he's just he can't take it. Can't take a compliment. So, well, you did you did a terrific job casting these four. 
And then, you know, and then tossing Felissa into the mix as Sister Monday. But something else that you do so well in this film that really, really popped for me at like the one hour, one minute mark, your sound design as it's the sequence where it really stands out. And from there, it just ta- your sound just takes off. Um, it's Ashley is going into the room that has the door in it, the, the door within the room, the dumbwaiter. And there's a punching bag, and it starts swinging. And then the, a zombie Sister Rose appears. Yeah. Ashley runs. She's trapped. Then she's hiding behind, you know, what looks like a communications board that would have been in, a gar- in the guard area of the prison. And in that moment, your sound is so impeccable. We can hear breathing. We can hear intermittent creaking. Like when you're trying really slow to walk up the stairs at home at two o'clock in the morning and you're trying so that you don't get caught and inevitably something's going to creak. And then the drip, the single drip of a faucet right there, that the way that you have that your sound is designed and mixed, that all of that comes out. But then you morph into Sister Monday appears. She starts coming closer the church bells start going wonky. It's like church bells are going off. And you get a techno wah-wah kind of sound and a, and a pulsing beat. I got to tell you, impeccable, impeccable sound. Thank you, thank you. Um, I did use a lot of pulse, you know, a little kind of 80s throwback. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge 80s fan, so there, I do have a lot of pulsing in it and things like that. And, and the scene you were talking about where it started, um, you know, it's like you, you want to build suspense, but you don't want to have no sound because people are expecting something. Right. Then, you know, all of a sudden it goes quiet and you go, something's about to happen. So during that sequence, I just wanted you to kind of hear the sounds you would hear, you know, in a basement, like dripping or creaking. It's almost like you're in some old wooden ship, you know, and it's mm-hmm. barely moving. And so I wanted people to kind of concentrate on that sound rather than what might be coming around the corner. And that was part of my exclusive interview with Tommy Faircloth talking about a nun's curse. The full interview will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Of course, Pam pulled up the longer version instead of the edited version, so we didn't get as far as I wanted to in this one. But that's okay. That's okay. Um, it's just more for you to look forward to when I get the entire thing up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Um, that'll be up tonight. So, but right now, without any further ado, we're going to switch gears. But before we switch gears, um, no sooner did we start the show and after a short tribute to Lynn Shelton... And I made the comment, let's see if we can get through the week without losing anyone else. As I was posting on social media that we are now, that the show is live, I saw the news uh, reported by Variety that Ken Osmond, Eddie Haskell, passed away this morning. Um, The hits just keep coming. He was 76 years old. Uh, And for those that don't know it, after he left uh, Leave It to Beaver... 
he eventually he became a cop with LAPD. Eddie Haskell, a cop for LAPD. He retired from the force in 1988. Um, so another, another iconic individual gone. So, well, on that note, let us move on because he is on the line holding for us. Welcome to Brian Levin. Hello, Brian. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well, doing well. I'm just, uh, I'm in Baltimore right now, just hanging out. That's about, yeah, that's about all you can be doing in Baltimore right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, everybody's just hanging out everywhere, exactly. Have they started opening anything up in Maryland yet? A little bit, yeah, they kind of gradually, gradually, and uh, hopefully in a little, as things get better, everything else will start to come open. Well, one of the good things about everybody being at home is that they have time to watch a lot of movies they might not normally see. And Union Bridge <laughs> is one of them. Uh, I know, I know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy available for everybody now and well, tomorrow. And uh, hopefully we can get some eyes on it. It is. number. It's a beautiful film to look at. It is so atmospheric. Um Sebastian Slater, your cinematographer, yeah. uh, d just does an incredible, incredible job with the atmosphere, with the visuals. Um, really captures yeah, he's some, brilliant. Uh, some beautiful stuff. But this comes down to the story itself that basically starts uh, with a, a guy in town named Nick who's out treasure hunting based on an old <laughs> legend. Now, who doesn't love a film where somebody is going to go digging and treasure hunting? Um, and anybody who's, who's from back east or who knows the region, uh, I lived in Frederick for a while, not too far. Oh, nice. Yeah that's, yeah, that's right near where we shot this. Yes. So, and as you watch this film, and I grew up in suburban Philly, right there in Plymouth Meeting, Ambler, Bluebell yeah. area, it looks just like that with the train track crossings and trains going down the center street and that, and that stone architecture, the old architecture that harkens back. Um, and a lot of the Revolutionary War, Civil War era buildings still standing and in use. Oh, yeah. Um, so I love seeing that on screen. So you've got authenticity there that takes us back to where this treasure hunting myth began and it began with a couple families, primarily the Shipe family, uh, and something something happened. There were pl there were plots galore happening uh, during the <laughs> yeah, Civil War. Yeah, a lot War. of it was under you know, under the surface, kind of stuff that's not explicitly kind of uh, shown or talked about. But hopefully, the audience can imply it at least to some degree. Uh, you know, of the betrayal that occurred in the past and how it affected the future generations. Yes, and if they need more detail, they can go watch Timur Bekmambetov's Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter that has a whole big thing right. about subterfuge and <laughs> secrets and betrayals going on. Um, exactly. But, so here we have these two families, and we have two, bo two guys who are now grown, used to be best friends. Uh, we've got Nick and Will. 
Will has gone away. His family are the leaders, the Scheidt family in the community. He's gone away. He's now come home. Doesn't like the city. Comes back to the quieter life. Um, but secrets that have been hidden now for 150 years, 200 years almost, um, are now threatened to come to the surface because Nick is treasure hunting based on visions that he's having. Yeah. And that's kind of the crux of it is that this one guy in town starts to have these visions of this kind of potentially buried secret, and he starts to act on it and starts digging around town. And this kind of sets off a chain of events with the Scheib family uh, where you realize that maybe what was buried is better left buried uh, as it pertains to kind of their legacy. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you grow up in a history-rich area um, like the Baltimore area, or for me, you know, like the Philadelphia area, there is stuff that turns up all the time as you walk through wooded areas, and it is not uncommon to find or hear legends and stories about things buried going back to the various mm-hmm. um, conflicts. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of history, particularly. By the way, can you hear me okay? Or am I, I'm not breaking up. No, we got you fine. We got you fine, okay, Brian. Cool. Uh, I'm just getting some feedback on my on my phone, but it's all good. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, right, we shot this right near the Mason-Dixon line. Um, and, you know, there really is generations of secrets and stories <laughs> buried there. It's where, you know, the Civil War really happened. And uh, there's a lot of kind of family histories that go back also that are uh, kind of dramatic. Oh, they're very much so. So this theoretically it could actually apply to a fa- to some families. You never know. I mean, there's you know, the world is full of crazy stories. <laughs> <laughs> but what you do with Union Bridge is, no pun intended, but you do open up a hornet's nest. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, with what the potential for what can happen to this town and to the people. Uh, and you tie in these wonderful quote unquote visions slash flashbacks to the families during the civil war. Uh, yeah. So a lot of it was kind of trying to connect these personal stories of the main characters with the historical context of, you know, their people in the past who had done things that, you know, were now kind of being accounted for in a sense. It was kind of the uh, judgment day a little bit for, for the Scheib family. Mm-hmm. And of course, you, you make use of that great cement factory that's uh, <laughs> right around there. And you've got that the Scheib family now, they, you know, for purposes of the film, they run this. And of course, yeah. what better kind of company to run when you got secrets you want to keep buried? But a cement factory. Exactly. Yeah, no, that was actually how I first stumbled onto the town. The town was kind of near where I live. And uh, I was driving around just kind of looking at the areas. And I came into this small town Union Bridge. And there was this huge foreboding cement factory that overlooked the whole town and A lot of people work there, and it overlooks the graveyard, and it's a very uh, interesting, uh, ominous look, I'm sure, as as you can see in the film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it also, because the majority of shots that we see of the factory, they're these 
beautiful night shots. Um, they're glo- yeah. oh glorious and like twinkling lights, uh, you know, fire lights. Um, and yeah. it doesn't look ominous at all. Daytime, it looks kind yeah. of kind of ominous and gritty and gray and dirty. You know, the whole metaphor, visual metaphor for you know, dirty secrets that you're hiding. Um, mm-hmm. So I love that visual contrast you create. But throughout the whole film, the visual design, your visual tonal bandwidth is extremely powerful. Um, and it needs to be in a film like this because of your editing, because of your pacing, and because you're going at a slow burn here. And you keep dialogue, yeah. you keep dialogue to a minimum. And you really let things sit and rest. Yeah. Well, the intention for this film, I mean, it really is kind of a counterpoint to a lot of the studio films in that it, you know, it's about mood, it's about tone, it's a, it takes its time, it's trying to, you know, really stay within that emotional territory. And, mm-hmm. and it has a plot and it has a story, but everything is really designed to ev- evoke more of a feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, and it definitely does. So I'm, I'm very curious. Um, once you have this, the script on paper, are you visualizing this? Are you storyboarding, making shot lists, making visual reference notes as you're writing? Or did you wait till the script was done and then you fe- sit there and go, hmm, how do I put this into imagery? Well, you know, in another film where we had a bigger budget, uh, theoretically, we would have had uh, you know, resources and time to do all that. <laughs> so really what we did is, you know, this is a small film. So the script was only about 60 pages because I wanted to leave a lot of room for wow. all the things that you're talking about, all this kind of visual space. Mm-hmm. Um, so really what happened was Sebastian and I talked about the talked about certain films like Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Uh, um, we talked about painters like Rembrandt and how they captured a certain look. Mm-hmm. And and then we went and walked around the town and said, okay, you know, he, he, this stuff looks good, and and, and here's where we're going to put the camera, and and we just kind of did it pretty quickly uh, at the day before the day of shooting. Wow, but I mean, because you incorporate a lot of your night shoots involving your character of Nick, um, glorious use of negative space. You really, yeah. you and Sebastian really embrace that which harkens to, you know, some of the masters of horror and psychological terror, Hitchcock being one. It's what isn't seen. It makes, you know, it drives yeah. your mind. The, it fuels your imagination. So you can just imagine what is coming. What else, what is out there around Nick as he's digging, you know, for what he thinks is a buried treasure somewhere. And then we right, see, or is he crazy? Is or he it, just you know delusional? <laughs> you don't know. And of course, then we see Will embracing this, you know, the whole delusion or fantasy as well, and digging. Yeah. And he doesn't remember doing it, but his hands are bloodied and dirty, and his fingernail. And I have to say, kudos to you guys for really getting dirt under those fingernails. <laughs> it was you know it was a dirty shoot we were out in the mud and we were out there in the rain and we had about you know 15 days to do it and uh so we got it done <laughs> well and i was, I was actually going to ask you about the weather and the rain because in 
a key scene where where in the third act where Will is digging and you see the dirt that's coming up, that's wet. It's not yeah. dry, hard packed, you know, summer we've gone six months with no rain. That's fresh, wet right. dirt. <laughs> Well, actually, what happened was it had snowed the day before, so we had to change our last day of shooting, and then we shot all the historical stuff that day that it snowed, which is kind of uh, pretty cool, but it felt more like a different era. Yeah, and then the final shot scenes of him digging, we had to put, you know, salt and all that stuff on the ground and hope that it cleared up, and it did just in time. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it's like, yeah. no, I knew that was not movie magic there. That really was wet dirt, which made it nice yeah. because it was easier for him to break it apart and actually shovel it. Um, exactly. You know, and, you know, this is where some of your casting is so great. Scott Friend, who plays Will, wonderful. Just looking at him, he has this moodiness to his look. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah. I'm so thrilled to see Alex Bro in here as Nick. I love Alex's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have heard me go nuts about Alex uh, when we covered yeah. with Larry Fessenden and his film Depraved. Yeah, Alex is amazing. I mean, he's very talented, obviously, but he's also a very nice guy and easy to work with. And so as a director you know, he's open to figuring out, you know, how do we push this to the best version of it? You know, and it's, he's a great collaborator. So he's you know, he's going to do some great things in the future. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, the fact that he is he is athletic. He used to play football uh, when he was at Harvard. Yeah. So no stunt double needed for him to be doing his own digging. No, he was up for any sort of uh, physical. He would jump. He said he would jump in the river if we needed him to jump in the river. He was all. He was game for everything. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the same. That's the same thing that Larry, you know, said about him too. Is it? Nope. He's, yeah. He's up for anything and everything because his role in Depraved was also very physical, um, utilizing mm-hmm. bod- bodily machinations. Uh, so yeah, to see this, but. You know, I'm yeah. so thrilled to see Alex's trajectory and where that's going. And he and Scott, um, neither one says much in their respective characters, but there's this tacit understanding between the two of them. Um, yeah. A generation's old thread, so to speak, that has them tied together. And you feel that. Mm-hmm. You, re- you feel that well, on that was screen, kind of what Ron. you're trying to do is, yeah, just kind of create these emotions and feelings without explicitly kind of saying it or making it over and just kind of trusting that the audience is smart enough to engage and say, okay, we're going to follow this thread and, and uh, get on board with, with the film. And I think a lot of people have, I mean, people who have seen it, you know, I think that, you know, it's not going to be a movie for everybody. No. Um, if you want your movies, you know, if you want to be told everything that's happening, that's ever happened and you want the movie to move really fast, it's probably not a movie for you. But if you're okay to sit back and kind of embrace the cinematic universe mm-hmm. uh, of this film, you know, people seem to like it. Well, you know, and that begs the question that a lot of filmmakers never stop and think about first. Um, you have an idea of who this isn't for, but who would you consider your quote-unquote target audience when you're pitching this to a distributor right. like Breaking Glass? 
Uh, and I have to tell you, you have two incredible publicists work in this film. You've got Scott at Breaking Glass. Yeah. You've got Kim Dixon. Um, but you got them both. Yeah. Um, They're making a lot of, a lot of noise for us for a small film, which is great. Mm -hmm. Uh, but who would you say, you know, pitching this to a distributor, which is like pick, pitching right. it to an audience, who is your target audience for Union Bridge? So <clears throat> it's kind of two things really. And, one, I think it's the art house crowd, you know, mm -hmm. people who like David Lynch and Terrence Malick and Antonioni, right? Um, people who want stuff that's a bit more nuanced and, um, <clears throat> and then, but also I think the genre crowd seems to be liking it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I definitely tried to incorporate darker elements and a kind of horror film type feelings so that, you know, I, you know, I wanted to make a film that I felt was, was emotional but at the same time could reach a wide audience as wide as possible. And so hopefully, you know, it has a little something for, for a lot of people. Oh, you tap, you tap into so many different elements um, here and contributing to this whole feeling and the atmosphere of the film, the ambient nature of it. Working your editors, Nick Koviak and Nelson Delamajori, yeah. um, what was the editing process of this film like? Were you editing as you went? Did you wait to get all your footage and then tackle the editing? What was that because of the fact that the pacing is so deliberate and necessary in this story? Yeah, so that was basically, we had the footage, and then I kind of just discussed with the editors that, you know, we want this movie to breathe, you know, I, and I want to... If we're going to air in a certain direction, let's make the scenes feel a little bit longer because that's what I'm interested in personally as a filmmaker. I like looking at images. I like breathing and taking my time. Um, but at the same time, let's make this thing fast enough that, you know, we're not making a, a European art house movie that mm -hmm. has really very little audience to kind of 2020 Americans. Um, you know, I think there are certain ways that you can edit a film where you like it as a filmmaker, um, but, but not all that many people outside of it are really going to sit with it and watch it. And so I tried to, with the editors, strike that balance of making something that was personally that I wanted to see, um, mm -hmm. but had enough of a pace that we wouldn't lose the audience <laughs> if possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you don't drag a scene out too long. You hold scenes. Um, yeah. And, you know, while you're holding those scenes, it's because something has happened or something someone's pondering. And you're you're pondering right, right along with them as to the viability of this wild goose chase, of these delusions, of these visions of, right. his, of history. Um, so you, it's, you know, you're dangling that carrot in front of the donkey. Um, yeah. so <laughs> but... And a very important element here, since there is minimal dialogue, is your scoring. And I love what your composers, your sound team has done with that, because you're incorporating a lot of natural sounds and industrial sounds um, with music that is that is kind of techno tweaked almost in parts. So I'm curious yeah. your discussions with your composers, with your sound team to come up with 
this oral soundscape? So I guess a couple things. One, that was kind of part of the plan the whole time was, you know, I wanted this movie to feel a little bit like a song, which is kind of a funny thing to say. But that was almost this weird theory was like, how can this film feel like just a a music, you know, like a Hank Williams song or something? Um, And so it was intentional to leave all of this room for us to try and move the story forward, really just using uh, music and sound. And so Chris and Turner, who were in New York, kind of helped create a lot of the industrial sound. And then Caleb in, down in Baltimore helped create kind of the, a lot of the Neil Young type, you know, uh, sound, mm-hmm. um, almost like folk and sound. And, um, I'll, you know, we just went through different artists and different movies and, and said, hey, this, is the, this is the world we want to be working in. Mm-hmm. And then they would send stuff over. We'd talk about it and then figure out, you know, where it could work in the movie. And that was like, you know, definitely one of the best parts of the movie for me. I'm a huge music fan. So I think about also like Hitchcock movies and how he moves the story forward with music, sometimes for five or even 10 minutes at a time. Oh, yeah. Where it's really just the score. So. No, I, I love, I love the soundscape here with the integration of actual scoring with those sounds. Um, it really, and it gives it that, that generational feel as well. Mm-hmm. And that contrast between some of the more industrialized sound that we hear and, and you know, the drawn out screeching almost. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a counter to the simplicity of the Civil War era imagery that we see. Yeah. And that is, and that is what this town is. The town of Union Bridge is, you know, it's a small town but it has this huge industry, but the town itself feels like it could be a hundred years ago before, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of kind of modern industry was around. So it was about kind of combining those two uh, feelings of, of natural and machine made sounds. Yeah. The, the whole film has, because we don't see cell phones. Um, we see a couple nice cars. Um, you know, Nick drives a very, Will drives a very nice car as does his mother. <laughs> Um, who, by the yeah. way, I have to commend you on Kat, Elizabeth Noon as, as playing Mrs. Shipe. She has such a Colleen Dewhurst air about her. Yeah. I just fell she's in awesome. love she's, with she's that. Powerful. I, it, because, and that's just it. That air that she brings and the slightly graveled voice, um, she feels like a generational matriarch. Yeah, and definitely a general, generational matriarch who, in the end, is going to protect the family's name no matter what. <laughs> you know, and I think everybody kind of knows certain versions of those those people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in different walks of life where the reputation, uh, in the end, behind the scenes, is what really matters. And everything else is kind of secondary. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can see that um, just by her very presence. And with the few words mm-hmm. that she says and the words of warning to her son, and it's, you will make Nick stop digging. And <laughs> right. he, he's grown, uh, you know, Will should be able to think for himself, but he still, he goes to try and do mom's bidding. Um, mm-hmm. Lest he, you know, he answered to her wrath. You feel that. Um, you know, this is very much a film as you, as you hoped for a film that you 
feel, you experience this from a sensory uh, point of view of feeling uh, the emotion. Yeah. You're not just seeing it, but you're actually feeling the ten the hesitancy. You're feeling the uncertainty. Uh, you're feeling the intrigue and wondering what is this secret about the Shipe yeah, family. Yeah, I think I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to make a film that you know, kind of, it was what it was. You know, it is what it is, and it's going to succeed or fail in its own way, almost irrespective of that. You know, it's. I'm just happy that I got to make a film the way that I wanted to. And, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of films out there that are like this movie in, mm -hmm. you know, in contemporary indie film. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that we were able to make something, you know, a little bit weird and different. You know, how, how challenging was this for you from a tonal standpoint? Because you come out of comedy. <laughs> to go <laughs> right. from, you know, from comedy, like flock of dudes, and writing for Adult Swim Network, um, what? How was that experience for you to make this leap into something so heavy and yeah, and darker? Yeah, it's, I guess from the outside, it's a little bit bizarre to go from flock of dudes to a uh, you know dark yeah. uh, you know minimalistic thriller. Um, but for me personally, as someone who has like enjoyed and studied films uh, my like interest has always been across the uh across the the spectrum of cinema mm -hmm. i mean actually last night i was watching a little bit of psycho and a little bit of splash so i think that that kind of answers they the work question. yeah i've been yeah so but I, okay I like all that so but the big question so totally brian which yeah. which version of psycho van sant's <laughs> remake or hitchcock I had to go to Hitchcock. All right. If you'd said the other one, I would have hung up on you. Hey, I'm just sorry. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think I've seen that one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the tone was interesting. And in some ways, though, it's like, to me, with writing and filmmaking, no matter what the genre, a lot of it is very similar in that it comes down to specificity. So if mm -hmm. you're hitting a joke in a certain way, you know, if you can specifically hit that joke you've you've accomplished the tone that you're going for or the mood or the reaction. Mm -hmm. And I think the same way with the thriller or kind of drama, you know, it's like, do you have the idea and kind of how fine tuned can you, can you make it? And then can you deliver? So in a lot of ways with writing and filmmaking, the, the genre to me is kind of, that is a little bit irrelevant. It's more of just executing the vision. Mm -hmm. How long was the entire process from script to screen for Union Bridge? <laughs> <laughs> so, I st yeah, you know, well, I was like, these, these answers can always be very long, but at the same time, um, I think I started writing it about two years ago mm -hmm. from probably around now. So I started writing it in probably May of, April, May of 2018, so two years total. Okay, that's not bad. That's that's not yeah. That's bad. definitely a lot shorter than other ones I've done. Oh, it's how long was your editing process on this one though? Um, because to find that that pace, this is not easy with this yeah. film. So I'm wondering, that, and with two editors, you know, there are two sets of eyes there plus yours. 
uh, and your producers. So I'm curious about that. Yeah, I would say probably about six months. Uh, that's not really too bad. Yeah, a lot of this was, you know, like, okay, let's get, let's, let's trust our guts. Whether it was a writing production or post production, you know, I think let's, let's not second guess the situation. If you feel like this is the right move and it seems right, let's go with that. I mean, I've always found that oftentimes your instincts are correct. So I kind of encouraged everybody, whether it was, you know, the, the musicians or the actors or editors, to kind of go with their vision and go with their instinct. And, and I trust that. And if it fits with the, the larger kind of uh, idea of the film, then that's what the movie is going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, Brian, we are out of time for the show today. Um, but before I let you go, film comes out tomorrow. Where can everybody find it? So it's available on all the platforms where you can rent or buy. So, you know, iTunes, Amazon, Google, um, Xbox, you know, your Voodoo. cable on demand, mm-hmm. um, also DVDs. So, oh. yeah, it's, it's available everywhere. Really. Oh, so it's DVD also tomorrow. Yeah, they got DVD, which is kind of cool. It's got some, you know, behind the scenes uh, interviews and stuff like that on that too. So that's pretty cool. Oh well, now I'm curious with the extras on some of these the pay per view stuff, like uh, Directv, Dish, things like that. Will there be any extras that come with buying the film online, or is that going to be strictly that's a, good a question? D- or is that going to be strictly a sure. DVD bonus? It might just be a DVD. I'm I'm not positive. Ooh. I know that they needed it for the DVD. Very cool. Because I've noticed a few films now are making extras mm-hmm. available online or you know or with your pay per package, um, you know. And for what they're charging for some of them, yes, I'm glad they do. Uh, they should. <laughs> yeah. But oh well, good. That is, a, and I, I'm sure you'll be able to order the DVD from Amazon and everywhere else. Yeah. Target, Amazon. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, Brian, I can't thank you enough. This has been an absolute delight talking to you today about Union Bridge. I love seeing a film like that. I love seeing back east. I love seeing that area, and I love stories like this. Uh, and awesome. It, yeah, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I can't wait to see what you do next and have you back on the show again. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brian. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, stay well. And that was Brian Levin, writer-director of Union Bridge, available tomorrow on all your platforms, on cable and DVD. That is all the time we have today. As I said, I will have the full Tommy Faircloth interview up later tonight for all of you to hear, uh, because it is a whole lot of fun and the best parts we didn't even get to. Uh, Now, next week, Memorial Day. We will, Pam and I will not be here next week. Big Boss, Big Boss doesn't want to pay Pam holiday pay. So, <laughs> we, behind the lens, we're going to be sleeping next Monday. Uh, but June 1st, we will be back. We're going to have a fantastic interview with Mark Bombach, Bombach talking about defending Jacob. The, he's the showrunner, creator, writer. Uh, 
If you have not seen that series yet, see it, see it, see it, and then tune in on June 1 because Mark and I go deep behind the scenes and there will be spoilers if you haven't seen the series, uh, which by that point, the finale of Defending Jacob uh, is is that weekend is the uh, Memorial Day is uh, when is it the 29th of Friday the 29th of May is the final episode of Defending Jacob Jaden Martell Chris Evans it is incredible and then let's say Raven will be back with us talking about Snayland she was on for the very first film festival that her film was in she is still out on the fest circuit but it's a virtual festival so she's going to be our first filmmaker that we're going to have on to talk about having your film in a virtual online film festival. So all you filmmakers out there, tune in and maybe get an idea and a sense of how this works uh, from a filmmaker standpoint. So that is all the time we have today. Until June 1, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.